As we open this text, I'd like for you to imagine that you're bedridden, sick, unable to rise. You have suspicion that your, le- your, uh, your ailment is lethal. You might not live through this. Today's text is going to give you some instruction for that. It's going to um, have you call for the elders, have them pray for you, anointing you with oil, the text says. What does it mean to anoint someone with oil? What is the significance of anointing someone with oil? Is it medicinal? Is it cleansing? Is it spiritually symbolic? Today you may not care, but if you suspicion you're on your deathbed, you're going to have a different level of interest. I have prayed for people on what seemed like a deathbed, and God has answered prayers and raised them in amazing ways. Other times I have prayed for people, and they have proceeded to expire. In one case, uh, I was at the Nelsons. Steve Nelson's mom had come and visited our church and came to Christ at a very elderly age. And when she was on her deathbed, I actually prayed that God would take her. And we went into the kitchen after we were with her and we checked on her 15, 20 minutes later and God took her in that time. As we look at today's passage, James gives these instructions to call for the elders and have them pray for you, anointing you with oil. And so uh, we're going to be looking at that. I've never anointed someone with oil. And spoiler alert, I am disinclined to do so. Um, And I will explain that hopefully reverently and submissively to the Word of God. And uh, and we can have, this is going to be a two-week session on this, because this week we're going to have to deal with what I find to be the most confusing aspect of the text, anointing with oil, and next week I want to deal with what is the emphasis of the text, and that is the prayer of faith that, 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 that saves the lost and, and heals the sick. Um, James is wrapping up his letter today, and he ends with two areas of concern for our purposes. We're going to, three weeks ago, I did not cover verse number 12, and, and uh, part of that could have been time, but even as I do so and I look at it today, I realize exegetically I should have included this three weeks ago when I last uh, shared the word with you, um, because it begins with that marker, look at verse 12, but above all. So that's like saying, and finally, uh, in other words, uh, of everything that I've been saying, above all, or and finally, this thing. And so he's kind of, it belongs with the previous section where he's wrapping things up. So it's going to stick out a little bit today that um, obviously um, it, 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 it belongs three weeks ago. But we will at least cover that. He's, he's going to deal with oaths or varying commitments to the truth. So we'll cover that briefly. And, and then we will open up today's passage that deals with prayer. It really is a passage on prayer. Uh, but then that confusing point of anointing with oil is going to occupy a little bit of time. Let's look at verse number 12. We are in James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick or weak? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
And I'm just reading into next week's text just so we have the whole body of it. Elijah was a man with, was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. God, as we open your word today, we love your word and we thank you, God. It is our guide. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be judged by your word. I pray that we'd be enlightened by it. And I pray that you'd help us to walk with you by faith. Help us to be men and women of prayer, submissive to you. Guide us, enable us, equip us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to pull out your outline today, it's in your bulletin. James warns Jewish believers not to engage in varying commitments to truthfulness. They're, they're not to have, no, oh, I'm, I'm kind of telling the truth. Yeah, I'm probably telling the truth. Oh, I'm definitely telling the truth. Okay? Um, you're to be absolutely truthful in everything you say. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. As we look at this today, um, the practice of swearing oath by some object. The most common object by which mankind swears is by God. I swear to God, somebody might say. Or in the Bible, you'll see godly people say, may God do so much more to, may, may God do such to me and more so if I do not fulfill my vow. That is somebody who is swearing by God's name when they do that. And we see that in the scripture. This practice of uh, swearing became very much avo- by God's name became very much avoided by the Jews. And that is because of a Torah command in, in Leviticus 19.12. It says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Let me read that again. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. If you want to know what it is to take God's name in vain, more than any other, it is to swear by his name falsely. So Jews would just avoid swearing by the name of God because I could even be not intentionally making a misstatement, but if I've invoked the name of God, then I've taken his name in vain by speaking mistruth. We are swearing in his name. So they would not swear in his name, but they would swear by other things. Oh, I swear by the temple. I swear by the temple of God that I am telling the truth. And... Um, then there became different levels of commitment. I swear by all the gold in the temple. Now you see, the gold in the temple, you could estimate, weigh, and assign a value. So if I break my word after swearing by the gold of the temple, there is a value I owe you for having broke my oath. So that would be more binding than saying I swear by the temple of God because I, yeah, what, what is the temple of God worth? I mean, it's kind of inestimable. Um, and, and, so, and you say, no, you're making this up. Well, listen to Jesus in Matthew 23. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if someone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. So Jesus is saying, woe to you blind guides. Who is he speaking to? Blind guides? I think he's speaking to the religious leaders of the day. And what are they teaching? 
If you swear by the gold in the temple, you have to fulfill your oath. But if you swear by the temple, not, not so much. It's, it's just varying commitments to the truth. So who's James's audience? Who is he writing to? James 1.1, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. We take this to be Jewish Christians right after the stoning of Stephen, very early in church history. So here are these Jewish Christians. They go into a Gentile world. They're in the, they're in the, uh, the, the dispersion. And they bring with them this custom of swearing by this or that, temple versus gold in the temple. Had to be very foreign. Uh, well, maybe, maybe not. Had, I would think it'd be very foreign to the Gentiles. It's odd on the face of it, but it betrays a fundamental dishonesty in the human soul. Now, the United States is not a religious nation, not so much anymore. At our founding, if you had said, with God as my witness, I am telling you the truth, you were swearing by the name of God. You were invoking God, and that meant something then. It would mean nothing today in most of society. With God as my witness, it's like, well, why are you amping up your claim to truth? Maybe I should distrust you more. It would be our response today. But we do have varying levels of commitment. You, you might be in negotiations with somebody, and they're saying, oh, yeah, we could do this, 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 and you turn the piece of paper over to me and say, could you put this in writing? Well, I, I, I can't commit to that. I have to go talk to management. I got to go, oh, okay, we're just talking. It's more directional and aspirational more than a commitment, right? So that's a varying degree of truth, and that's how we discern who's telling the truth versus, versus who is talking. In, in the trades, uh, you have this guy who's got more business than he can handle, and he wants your business, and you need it done next week, by the end of next week. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I should be able to get to that on Thursday next week. And he thinks in his mind, because I said I should be able to, that he has just excused himself from absolute truth. Because I said should. And the reality is he has more business to get done. He's not going to be there for three weeks, and he kind of already knows this, but he wants your business. So he makes a commitment that he really can't fulfill, and he says, oh, I should be. And then, then you know, you, you show up on Thursday, he's not there, and you call him, and he ghosts you. Or, or, or you call, oh, yeah, this, this, and you end up waiting a month. Uh, there, there are varying levels of commitment to the truth. It would be far better for that, for you, if you are a Christian contractor, to say, look, I've got three jobs ahead of yours. It could rain and delay me. And then I've got this main client who's my bread and butter. And when they call and say jump, I ask how high. So if it doesn't rain, <laughs> if they don't call, I can get to you Thursday. But if it rains or if they call, you're going to get pushed back. And if you need to find someone else, so be it. That would be a Christian way to do business. And I'll tell you what, you would find that liberating. You might have less business, less money, and I know we worship money as Americans, but you would find that liberating to speak clearly and to speak the truth. And that is what James is commanding here. Let your yes be yes and your no verse no. One final application before we leave this, and that is when you go into a courtroom, do you swear to God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And, and there are Christians uh, that would say, I can't swear uh, you know, because of this command. Um, and and I, I can affirm that I'm speaking the truth. Um, I, I don't think that that is the concern that James has here. I think the, the concern James has is a culture where we're swearing by various things and we, we, we just become these slippery, slimy people who you never know exactly when they are speaking the truth versus when they're not. And that is not to be the mark of a Christian. Your yea is yea, your no is no. And if you go back to the Torah, it wasn't swearing by the name of God that was wrong. It was swearing by the name of God falsely that was wrong. And so I would have no problem taking an oath 
and invoking uh, God's name. I'd also have no problem. I don't think it's a sin if you say, oh, I don't want to do that. I want to affirm. I want the affirmation. I think that's fine too. Um, I, I don't think you're uh, um, sinning either way. So now as, as James moves on in this letter, again, that's, that's clean up from a few weeks ago. Uh, he, he addresses a, an aspect of church life, and that's your response to life, hardship, and goodness. And your response to life is to be a response of prayer. God wants to walk. Our God is a relational God. He chose you in Jesus Christ. He chose you in the beloved. And he wants to walk on this journey with you. Whether it's hardship, whether it's joy, he wants to walk with you. So we're going to look at general hardship. We're going to look at joy. And we're going to look at a deathbed situation that probably involves sin and God's judgment for sin and possibly church discipline. Okay? Uh, but, but whatever it is, God wants to walk with you through this. And, and so James is going to recognize here in point number two, a variety of circumstances represented in any assembly of Christ. And he gives the following guidelines to mitigate or to navigate the circumstances, and really it's to include God in these circumstances. And the first one is, the one suffering misfortune is to pray for himself in verse 13. The one suffering is to pray for himself. Verse 13 reads, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. The word suffering is a broad word. It covers all manner of hardship. I say this as a man to, to contrast verse number 14. Look at verse number 14, how this person is in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. In other words, this is a person who cannot go to the elders. Is that what I'm taking? They have to call for the elders to come to this person. They are bedridden. Uh, additionally, if you look at it, it says, and let them pray over him. That preposition over is not used with prayer anywhere else in the New Testament. So when you're praying over him, I think what's happening is this person is in their bed and you are literally over them, praying for them. Additionally, it'll say, and, and the, the Lord will raise him up. And again, I, you know, I'm thinking that that is from a deathbed situation. And, and so this first one is not that. It's not a, a, a deathbed situation. It is a, a situation in which there's just some kind of a hardness. And the application is so obvious, and it is so obvious that we overlook it in our everyday life. And that is that we should be praying over our hardships. And we don't do this. You may think you do, but you don't. We're Americans. I mean, uh, we, we, we're resourceful. We solve our problems. Uh, we earn more money. We change jobs. We sell the house and relocate. We go to doctors. We exercise more. We seek advice. But do we pray? God commands you to pray over your difficult situations. And how many times have you found yourself as a Christian, this is a gift from God, it's, everything's going wrong, nothing's going right. And, and you try and try and try and you're just banging your head against the wall and about, you know, two days in, you finally pray about it and five minutes later, God gives you an answer. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe there was a message there um, from God in this. So the first injunction is a reminder to pray for yourself. The second injunction is this, is someone cheerful? You're to psalm. You're to psalm, you're to sing praise to God. The Greek verb here is soleto. It's literally, let him psalm. Um, it, it says in verse number 13, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. This would be like the psalm we have in Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. 
in order that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. There should be these times in your life where life is going great. Uh, everything is falling into place. It is just amazing. And, and rather than saying, it is exactly as I had foreseen. Uh, it is exactly as I had planned. Rather than all of that, you should be saying, my God is good. Thank you, God, for this and this. And God, thank you. He wants to walk with you through the joys of life. He wants to be acknowledged in the joys of life. Finally, the weak. And I have here perhaps even being bedridden. Uh, that's what I think is suggested here by the language. He is to call for the elders to pray over him. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of church and let them pray for him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Praying over someone. Again, that's not a common preposition. Uh, this would be uh, unique. There is also the prospect that the Lord will raise him up in this text. Um, suggesting that he is bedridden near death. There is another point of uh, difference here to this, and that is that there is an overtone of sin on the part of the individual and repentance. Let me just read verses 14 through 16. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him, and that, that, that word is weak. Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another in order that you may be healed. And of course, this entire section will end with the idea of some brother or sister is astray and you go after them, you have saved someone. You have saved their soul from death. So this verb here, to be weak, can be translated ill. Where else do we see this in the Bible? Let me tell you, we see it, and we see it connected to sin in the Bible. Do you remember the, uh, the Lord's Table passage in 1 Corinthians 11? How the rich were putting on this huge feast, and they were gluttonous and drunk, and the poor were at the same feast, and they were neglected and shamed and hungry? Well, the result of that, of that division of God's church was this. In, verse, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11.30, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. There's the word from today, weak. That is why many of you are weak, because you are dividing the body at the Lord's table. It says that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Exact same word that we have here today, are you weak? Sin for the elders. And if he has committed sin, if this is a sin-related judgment. It's also akin to 1 Corinthians 5, 5, where a man was overcome in sexual sins. He's disciplined out of the church. You are to deliver this man to Satan, Paul says, for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. I think that's a similar scenario that is at least being allowed for here in the book of James. You have somebody you've disciplined out of the church. 
God humbles them, destroys their flesh. They're about to die. Let him call for the elders. Let him confess his sin. Let them pray over him. The Lord will raise him up. Now, does that mean every time this happened, there's always a healing? I think you know your Bible better than that. Certainly, in the end, he will be raised because his soul will be saved. His body will be resurrected. We'll cover that aspect of it a little bit more next week. One thing I do want to caution is not all weakness and not all sickness unto death is due to sin in terms of some specific sin for which God is judging you. There's a general curse of sin on the world as we read today in our opening text. But um, not all of your sickness and weakness is connected to a specific sin that needs to be confessed. You might remember in, in, in uh, our Lord, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So not all sickness is direct punishment for sin. If you know your Bible, you know this. If you know the book of Job, you know this. But can I at least assert this? That there are some people who would be really quick to grab onto gimmicks or forms of religion, such as anointings. They'd be really quick to grab onto that and say, oh, no, 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 I want the anointing. I want the anointing oil. And if you were to say, hey, can we talk about sin as well? something that's emphasized clearly in this passage, they would be highly offended. You, you really can't take one without the other. But so often, we don't want to talk about sin. I just want my problem fixed. I want a God who serves me. Now, keep in mind James's audience. He has been addressing some pretty serious sins in these churches scattered abroad. James 1, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue... He, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James 2, if you pay attention to someone who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit here under my footstool, you become judges of evil thoughts and you are partial in yourselves. James chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I don't know if the murder there was hatred, a metaphorical reference to hatred, or if it's literal. I, I kind of think it's probably metaphorical. James 4.11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against his brother judges his brother and speaks evil against the law and judges the law. James chapter 5, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. There are some serious sin problems in these churches. And so as James talks about, is anyone weak? Let him call for the elders. And if this is a sin judgment issue, as he confesses this, it's going to be forgiven him. Just a slight note here. Letter D under point number two. Upon being called, the elders are to pray having anointed them with oil in the name of the Lord. Look at verse number 14. It says, um, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Why do I emphasize um, upon being called? 
I emphasize that because I need to be, as a pastor, as an elder, I need to be invited into your trials. There are some things that I used to do as a new pastor that I no longer do. One of those used to be uh, Thursday night, we had calling night, and we would go door-to-door cold calling and knock on the door to talk to people about Jesus. And I just thought, you know what? I'm also going to stop and visit members who, you know, I just haven't talked to in a few weeks or maybe even members who are a little bit distant. Do you know how awkward that was for me to stop in on you on a Thursday night? It was not comfortable. And if it's not comfortable for you and we're family, how is it for people who don't even know me? And so I no longer just drop in on members on Thursday night. Um, it, it just, it, it's not where our society is at. It used to be you had a porch on the, west, or on the east side of your house, so in the afternoon when the sun was low, you'd be out on your porch to escape the heat of the house, and you'd be talking to people walking up and down the street, maybe have a pot of lemonade. Oh, I'm sure I'm being a little too Norman Rockwell there, but, um, but you know, it, it, it was different. It was different. There was a time the pastor could just drop in on you anytime. We're family. It's good. Uh, that, that, that really cannot be done anymore. The other thing that I used to do is just drop on people in, in the hospital. Yeah, when they were in the hospital, I'd, I'd say, oh, I heard so-and-so's in there. In fact, if I was there visiting, invited by somebody, and I knew somebody else was there, I'd drop in on them too. That got awkward very quick. In one case, their son was there for an STD. He had AIDS, and his life was under threat, and nobody knew about it, and they didn't want anybody to know about it. And here I show up in the middle of this. And, uh, and, and there are just several cases. It's like, oh, what are you doing here? Uh, there's doctors, there's nurses, there's activity, and the pastor can be in the way. So, um, so it's important that we see here that, that it says, let them call for the elders. Let them call. The other thing I would say is this. If your view of the pastor is, oh, the pastor, he's the prayer warrior of the church. The pastor is the theologian of the church. The pastor is the spiritual visionary of the church. He's also the administrator of the church. Um, he's the greatest evangelist in our church. He is the leader of mercy ministries. He has the gift of helps. If your view of your pastor is that he has all of this laundry list of these gifts, that he is every part of the body all wrapped into one person, you have a wrong view of a pastor. There are areas of strength. There are areas of weakness. I hate to label mercy ministries as an area of weakness because I have been amazingly involved in your weakness from time to time on many occasions. And in other times, I've dropped the ball. If you're going to put out a job description and require a pastor to say that he is all of these things, you deserve the liar that you get. So, the point is this. The elders are being called for by the weak. And again, I think the overtones of sin and church discipline fit the topics that James is addressing here. God, I've had enough. I feel your hand upon me. My conscience knows what you're judging me for. I'm going to call the pastor of, the, of my church when they discipline me out, or I'm going to call the pastor and I'm going to get this right with you. Again, I don't want to step in as a priest. You don't confess your sins to the pastor either. So we want to be careful there. There's some odd doctrines. In fact, this whole environment, uh, as we look at the smearing of olive oil and, and things like this, there's a lot of interpretations. The Roman Catholics see this as last rites. This is the sacrament of last rites that's being called for here. The charismatic brothers and sisters are like, woo, this is the gift of healing, be healed, right? And, and as a Baptist, I'm like, I'm really uncomfortable with this, <laughs> okay? <laughs> it's just the truth. That is the truth. 
But I, I think, hey, here's, here's why I'm uncomfortable with it. I think the Old Testament Jew had associations in mind with anointings that I don't have. I am a New Testament American Christian. And, and for me to read this and it says, oh, well, it says to anoint with oil, so I'm going to anoint with oil without understanding what this anointing even is or what it meant and having no soul-based affinity for being anointed, I, here's what I'm concerned about. It becomes formulaic. It becomes almost like sorcery. It becomes like we're, we're lining up the spell. We're getting everything in order so that God will most likely do what I'm asking him. In other words, it becomes a way to control God. That's, that's my fear. And in fact, if somebody asked me, hey, I would like for you to do this and I want you to anoint me with oil, I'd be like, what is in your heart that you would request that? Uh, how many ways have we been anointed in this society? Who do we anoint in this society? How are you relating to this anointing? So I want to stop and make two applications. First, James' application will relate to prayer. The prayer of faith, first, foremost, last, and throughout. God answers prayer. Second, other healing recipes in the New Testament do not involve any oil. They involve the laying on of hands, for instance, with no oil mentioned. In Acts 9, Ananias is sent to Saul of Tarsus. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off of his eyes and he regained his sight. No oil was mentioned there. The laying on of hands was there. And if you're thinking, oh, maybe the formula for blindness is this, laying on of hands, and the formula for being on your deathbed is, uh, you're thinking like a sorcerer. There's no formulas. Acts 28.8, and it happened that the father of Publius lay sick, lay sick with fever and dysentery. So he's in his deathbed situation, and Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, healed him. So, as we look at laying on of hands, now laying on of hands I can relate to. Uh, that's warm human touch. That's identifying with somebody. I have laid my hands on people when I, often when I pray for them individually, not just about illness either. When somebody has a burden, it's very common to put a hand on a shoulder and to pray for them. That I relate to. That I'm comfortable with. But here in the Word of God, what is it saying? What is it saying to the 12 tribes scattered abroad? Why are they anointing with oil? Here's two possible reasons they're anointing with oil in their culture. One is medical, the other is spiritual. Um, if you were to look on the medical side, the ancient physician Galen and others prescribed anointing uh, with oil, olive oil, for paralysis. Um, one of my concerns when I read that is, well, wait a minute. Is there any benefit to anointing somebody with olive oil at all? 
Or is this snake oil being affirmed by the word of God? And, and as I looked at it, no, it would, if that's what the word of God is saying, this is a medical treatment, and I don't think it is. That's not my final conclusion on this. Uh, I'd say it's 20% likely, 30% likely, and if that's your position, that's fine. But if the word of God is saying, apply olive oil medicinally to this person, it is not prescribing a snake oil treatment. Olive oil is beneficial, um, it's an anti-inflammatory, it has some antibiotic uh, properties, it is a softening agent for palliative care, um, it, it would not be an utter waste of time. Um, it would be the medical technology of their day, you know, perhaps the best that they had in their day. And uh, weak in comparison to our technology today, weak in comparison to, in terms of anti-inflammatory, I bet ibuprofen is a lot better than olive oil, right? But olive oil is what they had. Um, our technology 10 years from now, I hope, I hope in 10 years we look back on chemotherapy as barbaric, as, as shooting in the dark compared to immunotherapies or, or, or um, uh, genetic uh, modification, whatever we have in 10 years, I hope, it makes, I hope it makes our current best technologies look just barbaric and primitive. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But for today, we recommend chemotherapy and radiation because it's the best we got in many cases. So um, where are some cases where we see olive oil showing up with healings in the Bible. Uh, in one, Mark 6.13, it's almost the companion text to this because it's the same indeterminate situation. You can't tell whether this is a spiritual action or a medical action. It says in Mark 6.13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Okay, they're casting out demons and they anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. Was that oil medical? Was it spiritual? We don't know. It's the same question you have here in this text. However, we do see in Luke 10 with the Good Samaritan that oil was medical. And it could only be medical. In Luke 10, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. There, I, I don't think there's any indication that the oil and the wine are anything other than uh, some kind of medical treatment of the wound. In Isaiah 1, verse number 6, we have a metaphor where, where Isaiah is taking an example out of ancient medicine and applying that metaphor to spiritual issues. And there he says in Isaiah 1, 6, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. So it seemed like there's at least palliative care there, comfort care, where you're softening wounds with oil. So whether anti-inflammatory, antibiotic, or even palliative, olive oil was used medicinally in antiquities. And this could be what it's talking about when it says, uh, let him call for the elders, and they anointing with oil can pray for him. Okay, the other idea is that this is spiritual. And I need you to turn to Leviticus 14, if you could please. The idea is that this is spiritual. And this is the cleansing of lepers. And the, I think the entire chapter is dealing with the cleansing of a leper. We're not going to read it all. We're going to pick it up in verse number 14. There's multiple sacrifices. And you're taking the blood of the sacrifice. And you're sprinkling it on the altar of God. And then you're sprinkling it on the individual. You're anointing them with the blood of the, of the, uh, of the uh, offering. And then you're anointing this uh, this leper with oil. And I believe that here, because of where it's placed prescriptively, that it's totally a religious exercise. Leviticus 14, 14. The priest shall take some of the guilt offering 
And the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand, and he shall dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand and sprinkle some with his finger seven times before the Lord. And some of the oil that remains in the hand, the priest shall put on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, on top of the blood and of the guilt offering. And the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hands, he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleaned, cleansed. Then the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. Okay, I take that to be not medical. I take that to be spiritual. You're putting this oil on the right ear, on the right thumb, and the right big toe for every leper. I don't think we're treating something medically here. I think it's a spiritual activity. You might read in Psalm 133 of how beautiful it is that Aaron's anointing, uh, the, the, the oil running off of his head, onto his beard, into his collar. And I'm sitting there thinking, get me a change of clothes, right? That is not something I desire. Uh, you know, it, it, it would feel more like I was getting pied for being on the losing VBS offering team or something that, you know, if, if you're dumping oil on my head. I think some of you would like to do that. Um, but, uh, but James is writing to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad. Now, Paul said to the Jews, I became as a Jew. And if this is a Jewish Torah custom... In the early church, early Jewish churches, 12 tribes scattered abroad, I would liken this anointing with oil to observing days and festivals. Romans 14 says one person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. The one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Um, so I don't think James 5 anointing is medical, but if it was, it was not absolute snake oil. It had some benefits. I do think it's a spiritual reference that Jews understood and related to in a way which you and I as 21st century Gentiles do not. For them, there was some clear reference that they understood down to their bones. For us, I'm afraid we would approach it in more of a formulaic, almost spell-like approach where we are formulating our prayer spell in the sense of getting all the ingredients right in order to make sure we get the best answer from God, the best results out of God. I think our heart would be wrong. Or at least I would question the heart of the person making this request unless anointing had been a part of their lives heretofore and it was something that they related to in a way that I do not. For my part, I would be in an utter state of disequilibrium if you asked me as your elder to anoint you with oil while I prayed for your sickness. If I were elected president of the United States, I would not want to be anointed with oil on my head the way Old Testament kings were. To them, it was such a blessing that the 23rd Psalm even includes it. It says, Thou anointest my head with oil. I quote that Psalm having zero desire to have oil poured on my head. But they quoted that Psalm understanding something very beautiful, experientially beautiful, down to their core. 
Are there any other commands of Scripture that we look at and we say, well, I know the Word of God says this, and it says this clearly, but we don't do this? I can think of four. They're imperative. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, as we dismiss today, I will not be greeting you with a holy kiss. If we were in Argentina, absolutely. I visited Argentina, and there's a few ways in which their culture is superior to ours, and the holy kiss is one of them. And it's not just in churches, it's everywhere. If you've got somebody that you know very well, you give them a kiss. It is non-sexual. You lean forward, you bump cheeks, you kiss the air, no hands, no touching, no hugging. Just, it's just very, very clean, very beautiful, very intimate, very warm. I love it. And I would have no hesitation in Argentina to engage in the holy kiss in the foyer after church. In fact, I absolutely would and have. But here in Minnesota? <laughs> could you imagine in Rochester? Yeah, they kiss there. So I, I think these are just limitations of our time and culture. If you can help me to understand this anointing in a way that I desire it, down to my bones and, and, and really feel at peace that I understand what I'm doing and I'm not seeking to control God, then I would be willing to engage in anointing. But as it is right now, I'm not there. And it's a state of weakness and time and culture and distance. While the anointing oil is receiving all of our attention today because we do not understand its significance, anointing is not James's emphasis here. Look at, look at the verbs. Anointing is an attendant circumstance uh, participle. It's not the verbs. Um, just, just look here at verse number 13, let him pray. Um, verse number 14, let him call for the elders and let them pray is the verb. Anointing him with oil is the participle. Verse number uh, 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. Um, Verse 16, confess your sins and pray for one another. Uh, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Verse 17, Elijah is a man who prayed fervently. Verse 18, then he prayed again. This is a passage on prayer. And uh, that's what we're going to be covering big time next week. We'll just say this for now in point number three as we wrap it up. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and if he has sinned, his sins will be forgiven. This is where we're going to pick up next week. Let me just also say this. Who's supposed to be praying in this passage? Well, we know the elders because you're going to call for them if you're on your deathbed and, 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 and desiring to get things right with God, perhaps. But everyone, everyone is to pray. Pray for one another. This passage is not just focused on the activity of the elder or elders of the church. It is everyone. It is just natural that of all of your church members, if you have a panel of elders, a, a, a group of elders, that they are going to be the spiritually mature among those in the church, and, and you're naturally going to call for them. Additionally, if you've been disciplined out of the church, they are the figurehead of the church. And, and so if you're getting things right with God, you're certainly going to call for the elders when you do that. So we need to keep in mind that this section is not focused on anointing, but it is focused on the prayer of faith. So today we've covered two topics. Honesty, let your yes be yes, and prayer. 
Pray for yourself in all manner of hardship. Pray praises to God when life is going wonderfully well. And then call the elders to pray when you are bedridden, especially if you have to get things right with God. And we'll continue this passage next week. Please continue the conversation. By the way, there's a lot of study, a lot of Greek work, a lot of medical work. If you want some of that, um, when, you, when you get up to preach, you've got to leave a lot of stuff behind. So um, if, you, if you have a lot of questions, I've probably already got the answer typed out for you, and it's yeah, in the back of the sermon where I don't use it. So um, let's keep the conversation alive this week as we look forward to next week. Let's pray, and then i ask the deacons to come and distribute the uh, elements of the Lord's table today. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for your instruction and your desire, really, your desire that we walk with you. You are a relational God. You have chosen us in Jesus Christ, and you desire to walk with us every day of our lives, whether it's a hard day or a delightful day. God, help us to be responsive. Help our hearts to beat with yours. And God, in that responsiveness of walking with you, of you have commanded us to walk with one another as a church body, as a family, confessing our sins to one another, praying for one another. God, help us to be open. Lord, we know we don't want TMI, too much information about details, but at the same time, God, to have a general idea of each other's weakness and how we can pray for sanctification, I I ask, God, that you would give us that kind of openness. Lord, we thank you that you loved us, that you have redeemed us, that you are the author of salvation's plan, that, uh, yes, Jesus died for our sins, but it's not like he had to convince you to save us. You Uh, Father, have appointed him to this task. You loved us from eternity past. And we thank you for the obedience of Jesus Christ and his love for us. Father, we have a king who has died for us. He truly is worthy, and we look forward to serving this king forever. Lord, we want to take a moment and remember his hour of suffering, his hour of shame. Perhaps I should say hours to be more literal of suffering and hours of shame. As he became sin for us, he who knew no sin. Father, as he experienced your wrath against sin on our behalf, it is stunning. It is awful. And yet, Father, it is our salvation and it is the spiritual economy by which you have said our sins can be forgiven. We thank you for Jesus, and we want to remember him now in his name. Amen. Deacons, if you'd come, please, and we're going to hand out the bread representing